Mighty God, you're faithful and you're good. And this is your time to teach and our time to listen. And we pray to respond in faith. And so I ask for this faithful group of friends, for my own heart, that you would speak in a way that makes sense to each of us. That you would equip us to be students of the word now and to be obedient to your word in the week to come. May the words of my mouth and the things that each of us consider in our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you this morning. It's Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to all you dads in the room. Today we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Ephesians, and what Joe read for us was from Ephesians chapter 4. And so far what we've been talking about in Ephesians is this big idea that Paul has been presenting over and over again. God has done something amazing by bringing his church together. What is the church? That's kind of chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. What does it mean to connect with the church? What does it mean to engage faithfully? What does it take, for example, for us to have faith kind of move from the head to the heart? How can we belong and then believe? All of, these th- all of these things are possible through God's movement in the church, which you're all a part of this morning. So thank you for being here. Now we're going to talk about what the church is supposed to do. What does it mean to live out the things that God has put into the DNA of the church? Basically, chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians have been about what the church is. All the chapters afterwards are about what the church does. And what I want to suggest at the top is that the church has a mission. It has a mission and it has a vision. We're going to discuss those two things and we're going to talk about three principles about how to live into those things. But to kind of set the table for us, I want to share a painting with you guys that you may have seen before. So Ian, can I get that on the screen, please? This is a painting uh, by Norman Rockwell called Breaking Home Ties. How many of you have ever seen this painting before? Norman Rockwell coffee table book, right? Saturday Evening Post. Like so many of Rockwell's paintings, it's a complex portrait of an American moment But there's so much more going on than you can just see at first blush. There's two characters, we presume. There's a dad and his son and the dog. Don't forget the dog. And the details of the painting, if you take time to look at it closely, uh, I would encourage you to do that. You see a lot of the story that Rockwell is telling. The son is obviously well-dressed. He has a suitcase at his feet with a sticker on it that says, State U, like the State University. A pile of books rests on top of the suitcase. A train ticket pokes out of the lapel of his sports coat. And he's looking forward to the future with this wide-eyed anticipation. The dad reminds me of my grandfather wearing boots and dirty jeans and a work shirt. He's got his hat in his hands. He's probably got something stuck in his lip. Looking in the opposite direction from his son, his posture's haunched, his brows furrowed with concern. And the dog's just doing what dogs do. He just got his head in his master's lap, right? Every one of us has had a moment like this in our lives. Every one of us has had a moment like this. The question I want to ask is, what gets us to this point? What were the thoughts that had to go through this young man's head for him to arrive at this place? Maybe he wasn't happy with the status quo. Some of us have done this. You get to a point in your life and you go, okay, things are kind of good right now, but I need a change. I need something different. The status quo isn't doing it for you. Maybe you left your hometown so you could find your identity. Some of us are inspired when we see other people go before us, right? So how many of us, you stepped into your profession, you stepped into the college that you went to because someone you knew went there before you. Someone else set that path in motion for you. Sometimes it's a hope for a new start, a a total hitting of the reset button that brings us to a place like where this young man is. 
that was kind of my story when I came to the Pacific Northwest almost 15 years ago. I wanted to hit the reset button. I kind of used that phrase. I wasn't in a bad place in my life. I'd finished college. I'd worked in politics for a year. Well, that was really bad, but that's another story. But I really can relate to this boy in Rockwell's painting. I was looking forward to something. I didn't know what it was what, and I knew it involved some kind of reboot, a restart for me. And we step into the unknown when we make those decisions. Whatever's informing our decision, we're stepping into something unknown, except there's more to the unknown than what we first think. Every one of us brings in a mission or a vision, even to the thing that we can't see yet. Maybe for this kid in the painting, his mission was, I want to go to college and I want to be a good student. That was the immediate thing he wanted to do. That's what your mission is. Land a good job, get out of town. That's your vision. That's your ideal state. So he's looking ahead to something. We don't know what, but he's excited about it. And dad is not excited about it. The church has a mission and a vision, and I think we all need to be excited about it. And so I want to share that with us as we start our time together. Then we'll talk about those three very actionable things. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And I apologize that the the bulletins didn't make it today, but I hope you can follow along anyways, taking good notes, as I know so many of you do. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13 is where we'll start, and then we'll focus primarily on 12 and 13 right now. This is what Paul writes, the gifts he gave, he, Jesus, were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We're going to focus on verse 12 and 13, but we will come back to verse 11. Verse 12 is where I think we get the mission statement. So if you're taking notes, you want to write mission, verse 12. Here's how I'd summarize it. The mission of the church, the thing that we're supposed to step into, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's the mission. That's that's what we are trying to do every time we gather together. Equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, if you do not regularly identify yourself as a saint, you are in good company. Most of us do not identify ourselves as saints because we think it's about us. Your sainthood is not about you. Jesus has invited us by his perfection, by his living the blessed life, to step into that even with our brokenness, even with our frailty, even with all the things that we fail at where we go, well, saints don't fail. Saints don't mess up. Yeah, they do. And saints are always being used by God to do the work of God. There was never a saint in the history of the church that didn't do nothing. Saints always had a task in front of them. So if you have a task in front of you today, and if you follow Jesus Christ, congratulations, I think you're a saint. The church's primary mission is to equip the saints for ministry. God's people got to go do something. Think about it like this. If you've ever been on a backpacking trip, you probably had to stop, I hope you stopped, before you went out on the trail and you checked all your gear. Right? When I was in the Boy Scouts, we went to a ranch in New Mexico, and a ranger, a guy that worked at the ranch, sat with us and went over everything we had in our packs. You don't need this, you need this, you forgot this. He was equipping us to go out on the trail. That is what Paul's talking about when he says we need to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The primary way I think that we do that in the church is actually through the word, is through studying the scriptures, both in this time together, gathered together, in our small groups, in our own devotionals. If there's anything I think you can do this week actionable around equipping yourself and others, it's being in the scriptures. 
But there's more subtle forms of this equipping too. Earlier this week, uh, I went to uh, go visit a friend who goes to this church for lunch. He works at one of the big tech companies. We're walking around the cafeteria, and there's another guy I know from this church who just comes walking across, and he works at the same company too. Massive company. I won't you know, name it just because I didn't ask these guys for permission to tell the story. Oh, well. And there's nothing weird here. It's just I always like to ask permission before I share stories. But um, I just introduced them. I just said, hey, you need to know so-and-so. You guys go to the same church. You may not have met each other before. That's equipping somebody. You know why? How many times do you feel alone at work? How many times do you feel like, I I know people, but I don't really know people. I'm not really known here. I feel like that's one of the ways that I get to help equip you guys to be in the workplace, to be in your hospitals, to be in your schools. As I go, oh, you should know so-and-so because they work at such-and-such and you guys could get together. That's equipping because then we don't feel alone. The New Testament as a whole envisages ministry not as the prerogative of a clerical elite, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. Ministry is not something that I get paid to do. If it was only up to me to do the work of the church, we'd be hosed. You would not want to be a part of a church where it was all dependent on me or any church where it's just dependent on the staff of the church. The witness of the New Testament over and over and over again is that ministry is the calling of everybody. And so when you make a connection at work, when you encourage someone in their faith, when you're a mom and you're reaching out to another mom who's lonely, who just needs someone to be with them, that is a way that you are doing ministry. And my hope and prayer is that we equip one another for that every time we gather together. This is what Jesus always did. He looked at a raggedy, smelly group of fishermen and he said, you've got leadership and I'm going to lead you into that. This was not an elite thing. This was him looking at regular everyday people saying, you have a calling, you have a responsibility to be a part of this thing that I'm doing in the church. The early church was all about equipping people who maybe were even far from God, like the Apostle Paul. He was no friend of the church, and he was reached out to, brought in from far off to family, and he equips others to go and reach others, and the church is sent in an incredible new direction. That's the mission of the church, to be who God wants us to be by equipping one another to do the work he's called us to do. Then the vision, the ideal state, that's the next thing I want to talk about. This is in verse 10, verse 13, and it's, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but I think the vision goes like this, until all of us come to maturity. So we're equipping the saints for the work of ministry until all of us come to maturity, until all of us grow up into the image of Christ. This is the ideal state. That's what your vision is. It's what you want life to be like, you know, years down the road, quarters down the road, however you want to picture it. What's interesting about this word here, maturity, is in the text, it's the Greek word teleos. Teleos is one of my favorite words in the whole Bible because it means not just maturity like, oh, you grew up, congratulations, you got a little taller. Teleos means becoming whole, being made complete, It's like all these pieces of a puzzle that is your life is slowly pulled together by God. All the puzzle pieces find their proper place and you are made whole and complete by God over time. I love the witness of teleos because it's something that all of us can move toward. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, does anybody ever get there? Do we ever arrive at the place where we feel like, cool, I've got everything settled. I'm as mature as God wants me to be. No, and if anyone ever tells you that, you should run the other way. Like, there are people who can become very mature in Christ, and we should look up to those people. I certainly do. 
but we should never assume that God's just going to let us get there. Like, oh, cool, I've arrived now. There's always this forward motion toward becoming the person God wants us to be. This is great news, you guys, because when we fail, God is still using us to move forward. When you fail at parenting, when you fail at teaching, when you fail in work, when you try a new idea, none of that is wasted. Because God is constantly moving us forward in the ways that he desires so that we can become mature in him. The only way you're going to learn to depend on God through failure is what? To fail. You're going to have to go through it. And that's the good news of how this vision plays itself out in our lives. Teleos continues to happen for you and for me even when we fail. So have courage this week. If you feel like you're walking through a season of failure in your work, if you're feeling like you're struggling to find a job, to find a role that really fits you, be encouraged. This is part of God's teleos of his working things out in you for his glory, and a new day is coming. Now, before we transition to those three principles of action, I want us to ask ourselves just a quick question. Who do we know who's really good at equipping others? Who do you work with? Who have you met in your field, in your profession, or in the circles you operate in where you go, this person is just really good at setting other people up to succeed? I worked for a guy when I worked for the YMCA who was constantly going around the facility going, hey, how's it going? What's on your to-do list today? Is there anything I can take off your plate? What resources do you need? He was constantly checking in and saying, what's going on? How can I help? What steps do you need to take today? I love that. And I asked him about that one time. I was like, Scott, you're great at this. Like, I love how you are just constantly weighing in and seeing how things are going. And he said to me, Travis, I'm your coach. And I'm here to coach you to a win today. I love that. How could you bring that attitude to your work this week? Similarly, who do you know who just has this vision, this way to see the future for you or for someone else, and who might just be praying or advocating quietly for that vision that you can't see yet? My wife was a part of a small group Bible study all through middle school and high school, led by this wonderful woman named Cindy. Cindy actually introduced Jill and I years later, which is just a whole other story. From the moment Cindy met Jill, when she was 11 or 12, Cindy prayed for Jill, and she prayed for me. They didn't know me yet, but Cindy prayed for the husbands of every girl in this group that she led for years. And I think Cindy still prays for us. This is a powerful thing because Cindy had a vision for these young women in her group, these teenagers and all their squirreliness and all the other things they got going on. She looked at them and she saw, you're going to be amazing young women someday. And I want you to be paired up with equally amazing young men for the life that God has for you. And she prayed for that for my wife. That's someone who has a vision. What is your vision? Who is investing in the vision that you may have for your life? If you don't know what your vision is yet, God knows. You could ask him. You could start a season where you earnestly pray and ask and fast and try to find ways to hear God about the vision that he has for you. Like the kid going off to state you, what is the thing that God seems to be pulling you toward right now? And how could you better depend on his courage as you step into that vision? So those are kind of the mission and vision pieces. Now let's talk real quickly about the three different things that God, the principles, the action steps that God has in this text as well. The first one is to walk in your calling. The second one is to use your gifts. And the third one is to speak the truth in love. Walk in your calling, use your gifts, speak the truth in love. First one is walk in your calling. Look with me at the earlier part of chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. This is where the mission and the vision piece starts to get legs and starts to get played out. Listen here. 
Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is your calling? Your calling is the thing that God has put in front of you right now to do. This doesn't have to be the thing that you're going to do forever and ever until Jesus comes back. But what is the thing that God has put in front of you to do right now that's been affirmed by others, that his community is really speaking into you? What are the things that you have in front of you right now? That is an element of your calling. Now, when Paul writes in verses 2 and 3 about these virtues, did you catch these virtues? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, seeking unity, seeking peace. Why would he mention all of that? He mentions all of that because he cares about how the church does the work of the calling. Whatever your calling is right now, whether it's to be a teacher, whether it's to be a stay-at-home parent, whatever's in front of you, God cares as much about how you do that as if you do that. We live in a day and age where everybody cares about just getting stuff done, and we need to be people who you know, hit our targets and set our goals, and all those things are good. But as the body of Christ, we're supposed to care about how we do those things. And the reason we're supposed to care about how we do those things is because our character is being formed as we accomplish those goals. So Paul tells his audience, look for ways to improve on your humility, your gentleness, your patience, your bearing with one another in love. Great. That's really hard to do. (laughs) It's really hard to say, I want to work on humility this week. Like, how do you roll up to that? How do you roll up to, like, I need to improve my gentleness? The number one way that any virtue has ever been communicated to me is through relationship. It's through being with someone who just happened to be really good at fill in the blank. They're really good at being patient. They're really good at being a leader in the church or a leader in business. We walk in our calling, we step into the unknown like the young man going off to state you. And whenever we do this, this is so important, we do it with other people around us who are going to shape how we do what we do. When I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, I was really influenced by my youth leader, a guy named Trey. And what I learned from Trey is that when you're a leader, it's really important to be trustworthy. Because Trey was totally trustworthy, and I could ask him any question about any hard subject about faith, and I knew I could trust him to be kind to me, and that I could be safe asking him those questions. That was a huge part of my development. That was a virtue, a value that was imprinted upon me at an early age. When I went off to college, I uh, sat under the teaching of a pastor who really taught me that you can have a mind, you can, have, uh, you can care for the life of the mind, you can kind of have your intellect and your faith go hand in hand. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen it happen with the kind of integrity that I saw in this one particular person that I sat under when I was in college. I had another friend, another mentor, who just took the parts of me that are already pretty intentional and really helped fan that into flame. And we live in a day when we need to be so intentional with others. Life moves at such a fast pace. Things are happening so quickly. But for us to take the time to really sit and be present with one another, to remember each other's names, to say, hey, I remember you said something was going on in your family last week. How'd that turn out? How'd the job interview go? How can I be praying for you? These are simple things that even if we're not good at remembering something like names, which I know we all say like, oh, I'm so not good at that. That's okay. Even just remembering a little bit about each other, encouraging one another, a quick text to check in during the week. These are the ways that we can encourage each other in the church. And I'm a big believer in the power of encouragement because it's changed my life. 
So my encouragement is, look back at verses 1 through 3. Look at those virtues, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Write down one of them, maybe two, and just hold those out in front of your mind this week. Maybe tuck it into the page of your Bible and go, there's got to be more I could learn about being humble. There's got to be more I could do in my gentleness. Who could teach me that? Who could walk beside me and trying to understand these virtues? Who's really good at fill in the blank at my work? And what kind of impact could that have on our lives, you guys? As we leave this place later, as we go out to celebrate Father's Day, as we go to work tomorrow, if we went out and became people of greater humility, oh, what a difference that would make in our world that is dying for people to be humble. What a difference it would make in our world for us to go out and be that much gentler, that much more gracious, that much more patient with the people around us. Our world needs this, you guys, and we are going to have a huge opportunity to bear that starting even now, right as we're getting ready to go forth into the world. So that's the first part. Live in your calling. The second part, use your gifts. Uh, This is where we're going to talk about verse 11. So let me read it again for us. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. This is where most of us check out. (laughs) It's okay. All of these titles do not need to be on your business card or your email signature for them to be effectual in your life. What I'm going to try to do is make the case that there are aspects of all these four things, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Every one of us has a way to bring these things to bear in our life apart from this time. As we go out in a minute and we are the church scattered, every one of us has the chance to do one of these things or many of these things in our daily life. So here's how I would define an apostle. In the scriptures, an apostle is someone who is sent forth to carry a message, maybe on behalf of a larger body like a commission or a government. This is a spokesperson, right? So at your work, you're a spokesperson for your team, you're a spokesperson for your department. In the scriptures, the apostles are people who are given the special task of building up the church around Jesus Christ, but not doing it in a way like I'm doing it right now, not talky-talky doing it in a way where they are with people in the dust and dirt of everyday life. Listen to Jesus use the word apostle here. This is in John 13. He's just washed his disciples' feet. Very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are apostles, messengers, greater than the one who sent them. Nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. That's the same word apostle there. Here's what that means. If you have a message to bear, which we do if we follow Jesus Christ, we're going to bear that by being servants. We're going to bear that by affirming over and over again, I know I've got got skills, I know I've got things that I'm good at, but there's actually no task that's beneath me. As Jesus Christ was able to roll up to his disciples and wash their feet, one of the lowliest tasks of his day, could we not, each of us, come to work tomorrow, be at home with our kids, whatever it is that we're called to do, and go, That's not beneath me. Now, I'm not saying throw out sort of the matrix of what's the highest and best use of your time, how to use your gifts well. You need to hold on to that. But there should never be a moment for any of us where we go, eh, someone else can do that. I don't need to to deal with that right now. A friend of mine uh, told me a story about how he went to an academic conference one time, and there are all these speakers and all these people bustling around, and he goes into one of the side rooms where there's going to be like a smaller breakout session. And the guy leading the session, who was one of the leading theologians of his field, I think it was Walter Brueggemann, he was setting up chairs in this room 
because someone hadn't done it. And he's going to lead a session, and he's going to teach to people, so he's going to go set up chairs. He's not standing there tapping his foot going, oh, when's that custodian going to get here? He's grabbing chairs. And my friend watched him do this, and then he looked, Brueggemann looked up at the clock and said, oh, I guess it's time for me to start. And people started coming in. And he just transitioned right into doing this amazing talk. We should never be above setting up chairs. We should never be above doing these things that Jesus would say, yep, that's the role of a servant. That's what I've asked you to do. Servants are not greater than their master. If you've got a tough relationship with your boss right now, you might want to write that down. Servants are not greater than their master. Show up and serve. Show up and be humble. Show up and be kind. Watch how that transforms your workplace. Okay, that's apostles. A prophet is the next thing. A prophet, I would say, is a patient visionary. How many of you have ever done uh, StrengthsFinder, this uh, assessment tool? I love it. It's one of my favorite things. There's a strength in there called futurist, which is just a cool name. Like, well, I have the futurist strength, right? I don't have the strength, trust me. But as someone who's a futurist, according to StrengthsFinder, is the person that asks, have we ever thought about doing it this way? Now, that can be annoying, (laughs) but that's an awesome way to think about what we are trying to do together in the church, what you're trying to do in your business. We need people who can kind of shake the mold for us and say, hey, have we ever tried this? Have we thought about looking at this a little bit differently? This happened all the time throughout the scriptures. Prophets like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, they would look at the way things were. They would get a vision from God and say, things need to be different. Things are not supposed to be this way. And they would have to patiently apply that vision over and over and over again to people who didn't want to hear it. So if you are a futurist, if you are a prophet, be patient. Be kind to the people around you. Being a prophet does not give you the excuse of being a jerk. Be able to listen patiently, to watch your vision maybe change a little bit, but see it come in God's timing as God desires it, and be joyful that you have the opportunity to see with vision. I guarantee you, in this room of entrepreneurs and people who work hard in so many different fields, we have some visionaries, and you may have the gift of being a prophet. An evangelist is the next title that Paul offers up. Um, I want to use a real technical term to describe this word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Here's what I mean. I've had to watch Mary Poppins, I can't count how many times in my life. And if you watch the scene where Mary Poppins and her sidekick, Bert, sing the song, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, if you watch their faces, they believe this is the greatest word they have ever heard in their life. And any of you who've been in musicals, in theater, this is the thing. If you go up there and you don't show that enthusiasm, you're not doing your job. But supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, according to Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews, is the greatest word they'd ever heard, and they conveyed that with their whole being during that segment of the movie. If you're an evangelist, you believe in what you're doing, or the product you're selling, or the project that you're working on, or the team that you're a part of. You believe in that. You are sold out on that vision. You are committed, and it is supercalifragilisticexpialidocious all the day long. And you can do that with sincerity. You can do that with conviction. Philip, from the book of Acts, he's one of the only people the New Testament refers to as an evangelist, as someone who was joyfully sharing good news with others. That's what an evangelist is. And Philip has the encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, who we nickname Reggie. That's a whole other sermon. And that's how the church in Ethiopia gets launched. That's how this incredible movement of the Holy Spirit takes place. Because Philip believed that he had the greatest news that he could ever share. 
the angels that herald the birth of Jesus, they're evangelists because they're proclaiming good news of great joy to all people. So if you go to work and you work in marketing and you work in advertising and you work in social media, you are doing this work. You are promoting the thing that you are supposed to believe in. That's a powerful tool. And we need people in the church to have that creativity, to have that joy, to have that ability like Julie Andrews to get up there and sing that song and to do it in a way that conveys the joy of the gospel to people near and far from God. The final title that I'll share is this pastor-teacher. The word there is actually shepherd. It's not technically pastor. Shepherd is what Jesus uses or what's used to describe Jesus in a wonderful scene in Matthew chapter 9. This is when uh, Jesus has come into Jerusalem and he sees his people. And it says this in Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word shepherd is the same word pastor that Paul is using in our section of the letter of Ephesians today. There's a lot that goes into being a pastor. But at its core, you're a shepherd. And this is where every one of us can relate to this in our work or in whatever our calling may be. A shepherd cares for the flock. A shepherd shows up on behalf of others and invests in them. And is transparent and is kind. And I will be the first to admit that I fail all the time at those things. But this is so huge in everything I've ever read on management and leadership. If you want your people to follow you, you got to show up and you got to show them that you love them. You want to be a good manager, you want to be a good leader, you got to put away being cold, you got to be putting away professional distancing, all that kind of stuff. There's boundaries, that's important. But you cannot be a good manager if you are indifferent to your people. You cannot be a good leader in your company if you're indifferent to how they are in their daily life. You don't have to be everybody's buddy. But your people need to see that you are with them and for them and that you are genuinely concerned for them. That's how you apply being a pastor, shepherd, teacher to your work. Be their pastor, be their teacher, be their shepherd. Help them know that they can trust you and that you care for them. Now, I just shared a bunch about those four different titles, the four ministries of the church. Maybe you're identifying with one of those roles. Apostle, evangelist, prophet, pastor, and teacher. Maybe one of those lands with you today. Great. I hope you'll tell somebody about that, and I hope you'll ask someone you trust or that you work with to kind of help fan that gift into flame. If you're not identifying with one of those, you're going, that's not me. Like, none of that's me at all. You're totally missing the mark. Okay, you know someone who has one of those gifts. So how can you encourage that in them until God reveals what your gift is to you? Is there maybe a kid in your life that kind of has this nascent, like, this, this guy might be an evangelist. This girl, she might be a prophet. How can you help just train that up and tease that out in them just a little more? And if you don't find a gift that fits you here, there are plenty of other gifts in the New Testament for us to talk about. There are spiritual gifts assessments out there. Come talk to me if you want to learn more about that. But the point I've tried to make, and I hope I've made convincingly, is this. Don't let yourself off the hook for things that you see in the scriptures that you go, that's someone else's job. This is our job, to be the apostles of Microsoft, to be the prophets of Google, to be the pastors and teachers of our hospitals and of our schools, to be the evangelists that our world needs to see. A commentator I read this week put it this way, the way the whole body grows, the body of Christ, the church grows, is for all of its members to use their God-given gifts. 
And that's why I put those card, we put those cards out on the chairs for you this week. Most of you are already very, very involved in ministry. You've already found ways to serve. But if you're wondering, if you're thinking, like, there's got to be a way for me to use my gifts, take a look at these opportunities to serve. Think and pray. Maybe there's something on there that we're not doing, that you would, or maybe there's, we're missing something on there that you would like for us to be doing that we're not doing. Come talk to me. Come talk to one of our leaders. We want to be fanning these gifts into flame. Okay, the final portion of our text is Ephesians 4, 15 through 16. So I invite you to hear this with me. We've learned that people in community grow when they use their gifts. The mission of the church, equip the saints, equip all of us to use our gifts. The vision is to reach full maturity in Christ. And let's talk about one of the key components. This is our last point before we wrap up, about speaking the truth in love. Paul writes in verse 15, But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, unfortunately, but there's so much in this text about what immaturity does about how staying in the same place, about just kind of being content with where you're at in your faith and your discipleship, that that's actually counterproductive. That can actually drag us down. And one of the ways that we can get through that, if we're feeling stuck, if we're feeling kind of stagnant wherever we are in our life, is, for have some, is to have someone speak the truth in love to us. Some of you may have grown up in church traditions where people could walk up to one another and say, hey, I'm just going to speak the truth in love to you right now. And you could just like brace yourself for like, oh man, this is going to be rough, right? I did not grow up in a tradition like that, but I've heard it's quite painful. The reason it's so painful and the reason we have to be so careful about speaking the truth in love is because it comes back to what's your goal? What are you trying to achieve in sharing truth with someone? Truth spoken without love is brutal. Like just dropping a truth bomb on someone, that's really hard. Love spoken without truth isn't really love at all. It's placating someone. It's deceptive. It's destructive. So there's this sweet spot of speaking the truth in love. And how does that help us achieve our mission? How does that help us get where God wants us to go? Speaking the truth in love has to align with God's mission for the church. It has to line up with this desire to equip people for the work of ministry, equip the saints, and to move the ball forward in maturity in Christ. If we speak the truth in love to one another, apart from those goals, we're missing it. It has to align with God's vision of people becoming more mature in Christ. So if you had that experience of someone coming up to you when you were a kid and saying, I'm going to speak the truth and love to you, or as a grown-up, or as a young adult, or whenever, and it didn't help you move forward in in your maturity, then it probably wasn't rightly spoken. My own calling into ministry is a just textbook study of how this can go down. I grew up around a big old church, bigger actually than Bethany, a huge church in Houston when I was a kid. And it was a formal church, right? Like uh, pastors wore robes, which I actually own a robe. I get it out at Halloween. But that was like normal to like wear robes. It was formal. It was kind of high liturgical. And it was a good place to grow up because I felt loved and cared for in certain spaces. It was actually a very diverse community. But I couldn't relate to pastors, like, pastors didn't make sense to me at that stage in my life. I, I couldn't picture one of my pastors, like, being in the grocery store, right? Like, they just didn't seem like a normal human being to me. It seemed like they floated places instead of walking. And I'm sure they were perfectly nice people, but I just couldn't relate to them. It was 
all kinds of things, but just this formality and this sense of like, you're not a real person. Like that really stuck with me. That was impressed upon me at a young age. Over time, God showed me that I had some gifts for ministry, for leadership, mostly around being intentional with people, showing up, caring for others. And when I went off to college and was part of a new church, I actually saw pastors who I thought were human. I saw people who would joke, not in a weird way, but in a helpful way, about their brokenness, about their struggles. I got involved in ministries. I started to see more of how my life could really flourish when I was part of a local church. I came to worship. I found people to really admire. But all the while, I kept saying to God, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to do that. Don't tell me that that's what I'm supposed to go do. You got the wrong guy. And conversely, I would have people in the church saying to me, you should think about this. You should look at this. You have these gifts. Why aren't you thinking about this? And I would just say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to be a part of it. What broke the dam open for me was over time, enough people spoke the truth in love to me, aligned with the mission of the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. They saw that I could take part in that, and I wasn't seeing it yet because I didn't have the maturity to see it. I didn't have the ears to hear it. And finally, over time, the message started to come through. One of the only times in my life I've ever had breakfast at IHOP was with a pastor from my former church who just took me out when I was in college. I was home for the summer, and he said, hey, I, I, I want to tell you something. Let's, let's go meet up for breakfast. And we go to IHOP, and all he says to me is, I've seen what you're doing, and at the time I was working with high school kids. You need to do this. This needs to be what God uses your life for. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, I don't really know this guy that well. Like, I didn't really have a strong relationship with him before that moment, and yet he's saying something that I need to pay attention to because it doesn't sound like he's trying to get something out of me. Like, it kind of sounds like he's holding this open-handed and going like, if you don't listen to me, you don't listen to me. But I think you need to pay attention to what God's doing in your life right now. That is someone speaking the truth in love that lines up with the mission of God, that sees a vision for someone else's life that they don't see yet. And then God opens that up and says, look, It's been here all along. This is what I want you to step into. It's funny how God works like that at IHOP. This pastor spoke the truth in love to me, as a lot of other people had been, but for some reason I was finally ready to hear it. Can you relate? Have you had that happen to you? Where you just heard something over and over and over again, and finally it just breaks through. The wonderful thing about that conversation is I didn't just turn around and go off to seminary. I didn't start doing a bunch of stuff. I just started to listen differently. I just started to see a little bit more of what God had been doing for a long time in my life. I started to see people be lifted out of poverty through the church, going and building homes in Mexico in the poorest slums of Tijuana so that people could get out of poverty, so that people could run businesses and start to make money and take care of their families. I started to see that big old church that I grew up at that didn't really feel like a safe place for me in a lot of ways. That church was transformed by Hurricane Katrina and became a place for refugees, for people who needed to be cared for. More than 100,000 people left the city of New Orleans and came to the city of Houston after Katrina. And that church that I was a part of opened up its doors and said, come on in. We got room for you guys. I saw the church change the world, make a difference in the lives of people who were hurt and broken. Here at Bethany... We are working with World Relief to take care of refugees, of people who have been displaced, forgotten about, thrown aside. We're trying to stand with the poor and the vulnerable. And we're just one church trying to do our part. 
But I believe, and that conversation at IHOP helped change the way that I saw my role in believing that the local church can change the world. And that all it takes is for leaders to show up and be serious about this vision, to equip the saints for work of ministry, to have the vision of maturity in Christ for us, for our kids, for other people's kids. And all it took was someone speaking the truth and love to me. And that's what I hope this message has been about for you guys and for me. More and more, I'm increasingly convinced that for us as a church to flourish, to grow, to see more people come to faith, every one of us has to use our gifts or we're missing out. And our community will miss out. I had a couple of meetings this week. One was with our search team for our new director of family and outreach ministries. We had our local advisory team meeting. These were great, great moments in ministry because I got to sit with really wise people who have amazing gifts and to have them weigh in on the things that God is doing in our church and have them shape a vision for that. If that's something that you can contribute to, I want to talk to you because I'd love for you to be a part in that wisdom, in that kind of behind-the-scenes quiet work. There are opportunities to do more front-end work on those cards, on your chairs. Take that home, think about it, pray about it. And what I want us to think and pray about specifically, and I'll invite the band to come up here as I finish up these last words. I want us to think about that mission of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. I want us to think about that vision of pursuing maturity in Christ together. And what is the part that God would have you and I play as we move toward that? How can we speak the truth in love through those ends together? Would you join me as we pray? Mighty God, we thank you that the work of ministry is not for some select group of people. It's for the people that you have tapped on the shoulder and said, I think you should do this. I think you'd be good at this. Thank you for the people who've spoken into each of our lives around that desire. Thank you for the people who are blessing our kids right now, teaching them, caring for them, helping them learn the truths of God. Thank you for pastors and teachers who've gone before us. Thank you for the opportunity to take the gifts that this letter to the Ephesians talked about being apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. May each of us feel better equipped. Know we are better equipped to do that work today. We want to do the things that you taught us to do, Jesus. We want to live the lives that you have described beautifully for us in your word. So as we rise once again to join our voices and sing, would you stir up in us an incredible imagination for the future that you have for us? We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.